I've been waiting to speak to you, Father. You have been talking to the police, yes? What did the police ask you, eh, Father? They asked about me. You told them about me. I'm going to be arrested, Keller. You? Why would they arrest you, Father? You're trying to frighten me, perhaps. You think by telling me that I will give myself up? You think I'm easily frightened after what I have done? So what are you going to do when they arrest you? Perhaps you will point your finger at me. Perhaps you will say it's Keller. That's what you will do, is it? You are a coward after all. You are frightened. Maybe they will hang you instead of me. And that frightens you. Perhaps you will tell them. You can't tell them as long as you are a priest. Can you? Welcome back to Hitchcock Chronologically, a podcast where I, Jeff, go through every single one of Alfred Hitchcock's movies in chronological order. Then I review them and I record a podcast. That's kind of how it works. Okay. Uh, So let me tell you, sometimes there are movies that are fine, right? They're just, yeah, they're fine. But they just, it's all about how you stick the landing sometimes. If you can close out with just an amazing ending. A thrilling conclusion you can save what is otherwise fine what is just decent right uh and that's what this movie is i watched i confess by alfred hitchcock it came out in 1953 and uh it stars uh some people i've never really heard of montgomery clift plays uh the protagonist father michael logan uh ann baxter plays ruth grandfort ann baxter her name sounds familiar she might have been famous back in the day. Uh, Carl Malden plays Inspector LaRue. Now, Carl Malden, he looks super familiar to me. So when that happens in these movies, I go back in the catalog of what they've been in to see which of these Hitchcock movies that Carl Malden has been in. He hasn't been in any of them up until now. Uh, But he was actually in the movie, the original Marlon Brando movie, A Streetcar Named Desire. Uh, And that's where I recognized him from. Not because I want to have this like humble brag and boast that I've seen an old movie that's considered a classic like A Streetcar Named Desire. But let me tell you, this is way better than A Streetcar Named Desire. A Streetcar Named Desire is garbage. It's really boring. And the play is an all-time classic like and i'm familiar with the play it's way better than the movie i don't care what anybody says not that there are not that there's someone out there who's hardcore into i don't know i'm talking about that movie okay this movie on the other hand uh is decent but then the last 10 minutes and i like i it out of nowhere like okay there's been a couple times recently where I've talked about making sure you move in your movie at the right spot. Sometimes you can have one too many scenes and uh, the best point of reference for that is the movie Spellbound, which 
had one too many scenes and it didn't ruin the movie, but it kind of kept the ending from having the punch it deserved. And then you get a movie like Notorious, which ends right when it should. Uh, and then uh, I believe there's even some more recently. I want to say Stage Fright ended right. Or Strange, no, Strangers on a Train was bad. Anyway, okay, I'm getting sidetracked. So, I Confess opens up with a man dead, okay? This is something that Hitchcock does in these early movies. And it's not so much about the murder itself. A lot of times it's off screen, like in Blackmail, which actually kind of calls back on this a little bit. There's some blackmail here. Um, or... As in the case of this movie, the murder has already happened and we start in right afterwards. And there's uh, a man who's leaving the scene of the crime. He's dressed as a priest and he's seen by these two uh, young girls. And the man goes to a Catholic church. I believe it's Catholic. Uh, and gets out of this like smock that he like the garb they call it a cassock which is a garb that a priest would wear and he meets up with uh father logan i don't know if you can hear it it's thundering outside um he meets up with father logan and this murder is already weighing on him so he takes the time to confess to father logan in a confessional in a uh very official manner now, I don't know the rules of Catholicism and uh, what priests are allowed and not allowed to talk about from what they hear in confessionals. I don't know if they hear someone confess to a crime, if they are required to give that information to the police. I would imagine they are, but I could be wrong. And certainly in the States, I think it's the truth where they would have to uh, you know, give up that information, but who knows this, this feels, uh, this takes place in the UK. I was going to say it feels like it takes place in the UK, but it definitely does because the courts and all that, uh, they use different terminology. There's a one point where the guy has cookies and he calls them biscuits. We're in the UK. Now, half of the cast has a like British accents and the other half has an American accent. And so, they're not worried too much about consistency across the board as far as that goes. Now, so Father Logan, after hearing this confession, he has an appointment. So the guy who gets killed is Mr. Vallette. And Mr. Vallette is an attorney. And it just so happens that Father Michael Logan has an appointment to go see Mr. Vallette the next day. And when he goes there, there's people outside because there's been this murder and it's a spectacle. And a woman shows up there and that would be Ruth Granfort. And he, Father Logan lets her know, yeah, Vallette's been killed. And her response is, oh, we're free. So you already know something's up there. And this relationship between Father Logan and uh, Miss Granfort comes into play big time because Miss Granfort is actually Mrs. Granfort and she is married to uh, a guy by the name of Pierre Granfort. And Pierre and Ruth are good friends with, uh, I forget what they call it, the, the 
Her Majesty's like, anyway, he's like the DA, the district attorney, the British equivalent of it. He's the prosecuting attorney in this district. And so the person investigating this now murder is Inspector LaRue, played by Carl Molden. Carl Molden is great. He's super charismatic. He's likable. And similar to Notorious, where at the end I felt uh, a certain level of, yeah, go get him. Uh, with Cary Grant saving um, Ingrid Bergman's character, Notorious. I felt the same way near the end of this movie about Inspector LaRue. And what I think I like about the movie, too, is the characterizations are really good. The plot is kind of dull for most of the story. Um, A lot of it is to establish the relationships and you pay a lot of attention to the investigation that inspector LaRue does, uh, the witnesses, they spend some time, uh, interviewing these two little girls who had walked by the scene of the crime shortly after it happened. And they say a priest was there because that's what they saw. And this makes it so that, uh, inspector LaRue goes around and talks to all the priests, but he actually had seen Father Logan speak with Miss Granfort the morning after the murder, because remember, he had an appointment there. And this automatically gets the wheels turning for LaRue, and he's already kind of ready to say his primary suspect is Michael Logan. Keep in mind now that Michael Logan, Father Logan, is the, uh, the number one chief suspect the whole time. In this movie, he knows who really did it because he heard it in the confessional. But his commitment to his not just faith, but his oaths as a priest supersede the his concerns for his own freedom. Again, I don't know if that's something that is the case in the Catholic Church, that they are able to withhold any information that's found out in confessionals or they can't be called as witnesses or they don't have to divulge anything or they're expected not to. I don't know. But for the sake of this world and the sake of the story and the sake of the character motivations, we're going to assume that that is the case, that the uh, God's law says that they would not share uh you know, this information divulged in confessionals. Now, while I'm not a Catholic, uh, someone who goes to a Catholic church, uh, I do go to church. I do believe in Jesus. And you can listen to an episode of a podcast that I did called I Just Want to Talk with Lakendra, my good friend, called Jesus Therapy and Cupcakes. But I want to say that as someone who believes very much in forgiveness, that the ending of this movie, I really liked And the theme of your devotion to your faith, I really like. Now, I know in our current political climate in the United States, there can be some weirdness around that. I'm just going to leave it there. I'll get to more of that when we get to the end. Where are we? Okay, so um, basically what happened was we find out that... uh, Mr. Keller, who is the actual murderer in this movie, lives at this uh, 
church. I forget what they call it. There's a word for it they use over and over, and I didn't take the time to memorize it. They He lives at this church where he's basically, he and his wife were like homeless, and they were brought in by the church, and they work for their room and board. Uh, his wife works there as well. And he tells his wife that he killed this guy and had confessed. And she's like, well, he'll go to the police. And he's, and Keller's like, he's not allowed to. He can't. He shouldn't. Um, which, again, I don't know. Now, after establishing, uh, what's his name? Father Logan is the prime suspect. He, Inspector LaRue wants to interview Ruth, who he saw again with uh, Doc, uh, Father Logan at the scene of the crime. And, and Father Logan has already had an interview with LaRue and has refused to really give any information. And again, he's doing that out of his commitment to keep this promise that what happens in confessional stays in confessional. Um, and so that by bringing in Ruth, he's hoping to get a little more information. She's not too forthcoming, um, at least immediately. And after this interview, she now knows that Logan is indeed, um, I might be getting a couple scenes mixed up because at some point Ruth finds out that Logan is the chief suspect and she meets up with him on a boat and father Logan's like, what are you doing? The police will see us and then you'll be in trouble. Well, sure enough, the police see her and they call her in and her husband is with him, uh, who is Pierre Grandfort. And they are actually friends with uh, Willie Robertson, who is the district attorney, because I forget the term they actually use. He's the prosecuting attorney in this uh, area. And you find out that Pierre knows that his wife, Ruth, is actually in love with Father Logan and has been their entire marriage. And she is unapologetic about it. He even says, well, I've never really loved you. Now, in this sort of movie, the the type of thing that we're used to seeing and hearing is that the husband is just a real piece of garbage, right? That she's not in love with this guy because he's mean, he's abusive, he's terrible. None of those things are true. Pierre Grandfort is just a totally, like, hyper calm, secure person. Like he knows that his wife is in love with this priest and he's not okay with it, but he also realizes that she wants to stick up for him and tell the truth about this affair, which not only, and it's not really an affair. We, I, it's kind of in a gray area, but I, Father Logan basically says they didn't do anything uh, once he had found out she was married and he joined the priesthood. So this isn't some long ongoing affair, uh, but they did have love for each other uh, a long time ago. And we find this out because in her, she goes into the office to exonerate and give the alibi to Father Logan, who she was with the night of the murder. And she tells this long story and it goes on and it, you get to see every scene, all of their romance and this is just, it just goes and goes and goes. Uh, they basically were childhood sweethearts. He went to war. He told her while he was at war, don't wait for me. You know, 
I mean, I'm probably not coming back. This is World War II we're talking about. Go on, live your life. Because he loves her and he wants her to move on. I like that. He's like, he's a good dude, right? Um, and she does. And she marries Pierre. And she doesn't realize that it's a problem that she's in love with him still till he comes back. And Father Logan comes back from war and they spend a day together. They get caught in the rain and they sleep in like this gazebo thing. And they get caught by Valette, who is the man who was murdered at the beginning of the movie. And Valette says something to Father Logan before he's Father Logan. And Father Logan pops him one. And then uh, Valette sees that he is with um, Ruth, who is a wealthy person, along with her husband. Her husband is like a... I don't know if he's like an attorney. I think he or he works in Congress or some sort of uh, government capacity. Uh, he, he makes arguments in courtrooms and I don't know what he does, but he's doing pretty well for himself. They live in a nice, fancy house. And again, he's friends with the D.A. So she tells this whole story and says, you know, I dropped him off at 11 o'clock. That's when the murder happened. He's innocent. They go home. Everybody seems to be okay. The issue is, is that they had just gotten the uh, autopsy back and it shows that the victim died at 1130, which means that Father Logan had enough time from when he was dropped off to go kill Valette. Now, and the reason this is important is because this story that Ruth has told, which is in her words, the truth she explained to Father Logan that she had been blackmailed or is being blackmailed. Uh, basically, Valette has gotten some tax trouble and wants her husband to help get him out of it somehow, either by swinging his uh, governmental powers or being a really good attorney or whatever it is he does. And she's not willing to tell her husband about it. He, until much later as the anyway but she's not willing to tell her husband about the blackmail and after this conversation father logan says he'll take care of valette in her words and so this now has given motive as to why father logan committed this murder enough so they decide to arrest him and you heard at the opening, he finds out he's going to get arrested and the real killer, killer, Keller says, what are you going to do? Tell them about my confession. What are you, a coward? What a villain. This is a, that's a great scene. That's why it's at the front and it just really good stuff. So they cut to the courtroom and this courtroom scene. It's not bad. It, it goes on for a little bit. Uh, they discuss the, the cassock that was found in Father Logan's trunk, which was planted by Mr. Keller. It discusses his affair, which turns out to not be an affair. And various other things. There's other there's Mr. Keller has a long testimony uh, where he makes up lies that implicate father logan 
And during that whole speech from Mr. Keller, his wife is in the audience, Alma, squirming and being uncomfortable because she knows the truth. He's implicating this innocent man. Then we go, uh, after all the deliberation and all of this stuff, we get to the jury scene. Now, I'm going to play for you the entire jury scene. Get a cup of tea, get a Pop-Tart, get whatever snack you want, and settle in for the entirety of the jury scene from I Confess. But I believe what the prosecutors obviously didn't spend just that one night together. There must have been many more times. And there you have it. The entire scene. No joke. That's why even film this. Why take the time to have a set for a jury scene? It's it's less than 10 seconds. Why have that in the movie? It blew my mind that this was happening. So after they deliberate for 10 seconds, they've come to a verdict. And they stand and they say, although we believe there's a lot of suspicious things about Father Logan, we do not have enough evidence to come up with a guilty verdict. Therefore, we find Father Logan not guilty. And I was like, I was thrown because I thought for sure there was going to be some sort of swerve in the case. Matlock was going to come in the door. That's a reference that does anybody here watch Matlock? I did. My mom loves Matlock. I watched it on sick days. Don't judge me. But I thought Matlock was going to come in and save the day. And he never did. And he didn't need to because there wasn't enough evidence. It was all circumstantial. And based on what was shown in this case, I have to agree. Right? Uh, yeah, I've talked about my time doing jury duty that one time. And it just seemed like I, I thought their verdict was the correct one. But the person who did disagree was the judge. And the judge is a terrible actor in this movie. He's horrible. He's horrible. He has like three lines. He, he like sounds like he's reading them. Anyway, he says, I think you're guilty, basically, but nothing else I can do about it. You're free to go. And that's when this movie picks up and we have 10 minutes left. You could fit so many jury scenes in this last 10 minutes. Now, it just, it's so good. Like, all right, so he's free to go. He's being ushered out. Ruth comes up to talk to him. He doesn't say much. He starts heading out and there's just a mob out there and you hear people in the courtroom yelling, take the collar off, take the collar off. And he's going out and he's getting like, there's police there, but he's just trying to get to his car and go back to the monastery or wherever it is and go home. And he's just trying to get in and he's getting pushed around. He ends up breaking the window of the car with his elbow because there's all this violence around him of people who think this guilty man got off and they're mobbing him. So even though he is innocent in the eyes of the court, in the eyes of the law, he is guilty in the eyes of society. And he is now paying that penalty. And, um, Alma Keller, the, 
the wife of the actual killer, sees all this, knowing he's an innocent man, and is keeping a secret for the sake of her family and her husband that she runs to him and pushes people off of him and looks at the police and says, no, no, he's innocent. And as she's about to tell the police the truth, Mr. Keller pulls a gun out and shoots her from range. I don't know if he was uh, what, what his intentions were. He shoots her and runs off. And she's laying there. And she's trying to say something. And she says, forgive me to Father Logan, uh, who her his uh, companion, like the head of the church is there praying over her as she passes. She dies. And uh, Inspector LaRue is there. And he, throughout the movie, has been one of the most entertaining parts. Now, there is another exception. One of the best things is watching... Uh, Willie Robertson, who is, again, the district attorney during this court trial. He's phenomenal. Like, he's really good in, in the best thing about that scene. But anyway, uh, this is a part where Inspector LaRue sort of becomes like, I'm like, yeah, go get him. Because now he knows with certainty that Father Logan is innocent and that Mr. Keller, Otto Keller, is the actual killer. And he's still trying to get information out of Father Logan. Okay, why did he just shoot his wife? What is happening? And he's keeping it to himself. Now, I know. It's probably reasonable at this point to say, okay, he's Keller's the killer, and that's why he killed his wife. And I think if we take this movie more as a study in... Doing what you believe is right in the face of everything else and being a person of integrity. So even if you're not a person of faith, you being a person of integrity, doing and keeping the promises you've made, even if it means you suffer for it. And that's what this movie is. That's the theme of this movie. And he refuses to speak. And there's several times, but as they pursue Otto Keller, where he's like, just let me talk to him, says Father Logan. Let me talk to him. Because now he's got a gun, he's on the run. And now one thing I got to say that kind of takes the shine off of this these last 10 minutes of what is otherwise a an exceptional 10 minutes of filmmaking is that uh, LaRue wants to clear father logan's name and the only way he knows to do that is to be able to speak with Otto keller so he instructs his deputies to not fire don't don't shoot him his deputy says hey that guy has a gun though and they're like i know don't shoot him and okay i get that however if he's got a gun and at several points he's opening fire on the detectives. I got to think at some point you have to say, you know what? We can't keep ta- He's shooting in public places. He murdered. Okay. He murdered his wife. Maybe not intentionally, but kind of intentionally. And then on the way, he murdered some random chef in a restaurant. They got out of the way to tell you this. Why are you not killing? Like, sh- if he wasn't armed, 
we obviously know that's not something they should do. Don't shoot unarmed people, regardless of how they look, their race, anything like that. In this case, this guy is armed and opening fire. He's already murdered two people. And you're in a shootout, like a standoff with him. It just like, I don't know where it is exactly, but it's a public place. And Inspector LaRue actually gets genius because he goes, um, why don't you tell me about Villette? And without, so he, LaRue suspects now heavily that Otto Keller has killed Levette. And so he says, well, tell me about Levette. And Otto says, oh, so the priest told you, did he? Oh, he's a coward. He told you about my confession. What a loser. Uh, he says more words than that. And um, that's all that Inspector LaRue needed. And so now they're ready to go ahead and shoot the guy because they got what he needed to exonerate Logan. Even though he's not guilty in the eyes of the law, he also wants to be able to, as we've seen, get these mobs to leave him alone because he isn't actually, he is an actual innocent person. And uh, so he tells his marksman, just shoot, shoot him in the arm. Okay. Shoot him in his arm. Let's see if we can get him disarmed and, and take him in. So they do this and father Logan again, because he cares about Otto, says, let me just talk to him. And he walks in and Otto raises his gun and uh, Father Logan says, You won't shoot me, Otto. Why will I not shoot you? Because you called me Otto? In such a friendly way like Alma used to call me Otto. Where is my Alma? She's dead. No. You killed her? It is your fault. Oh, I loved her. Made me cry to see her work so hard. Those poor hands. Such beautiful hands. She can't be dead. She is. When I am as alone as you are. I'm not alone. Oh, yes. You are. To kill your lover would be a favor to you. You have no friends. What has happened to your friends, eh? <laughs> they marvel you, they call at you. It would be better you were as guilty as I. Then they would shoot you quickly. And you must suffer much. And he raises his gun. And the police shoot him. And as he falls, he asks for the priest's help. Father, help. And Father Logan goes to him and catches him. And he dies as he utters the words, forgive me. He never gets them out. And as he's dying, Father Logan is praying for him and closes his eyes. And then it says the end. Hey, <laughs> they did. Uh, the last 10 minutes of this movie save the whole thing it's so good like it's one of those times where you just go yes that's how you make a movie and then for me as someone who believes in doing the right thing and believes in forgiveness 
And even though this is an extreme representation and forgiveness, it doesn't actually mean that I would like if someone, I saw someone murder someone, I could forgive them for that act and still go to the police and turn them in. But I think if we take this more of an allegory of, or in a lot of ways, a literal sense of keeping your promises and being faithful, whether it's to God, to uh, your ideals, to your integrity, to the point where it actually gets you in legal trouble or other kinds of trouble, but knowing that you've made a promise and you're going to keep it no matter what it costs you. And that's what happens to Father Logan in this story. And it's so well done at the end. And I, I have to say, and it's easy to hyper praise the end of the movie, but what makes it work is also the journey there. And there were points where it was dull, especially during her story about their whole love thing. It, it just kind of dragged a little long for me. Uh, but largely the movie's entertaining and then it just blows up at the end. Like I believe in storytelling, a climax comes right before the end. It's not the end like in this movie, but I like it when this is the, this is the climax. This is the end. And it, it goes out on a bang. It goes out on a high. It goes on out with uh, the most emotional part of it. It's really good. And I can't say enough about it. I, I've, I'm trying to think of all the movies I've seen, the most condensed and concentrated moments of goodness, I think happen here in the last 10 minutes. Whereas movies like Lifeboat is a long form, a slow story, all good and told well. This is concentrate. This is everything packed into a 10 minute section that has been built up with character work for the first hour 20. It's an hour and 30 minute movie. And uh, it happened, I think it was like five bucks to buy for me in digital on Google. And I'm glad I did because I can watch it now whenever I want. And uh, I may watch this again. The performances are great, with the exception of the judge, who's awful. I can't say enough about how bad he is. Well, uh, that's a hidden gem. Like, I talk sometimes about, I've not heard of this one. I don't know that it, I confess to me, it's a hidden gem in the Hitchcock Library. And uh, I do recommend it. Uh, Now, we move on to Dial M for Murder. Uh, we go ahead one year and dial M is in my opinion, one of his more popular films. Uh, it was showcased in that amusement park thing. I talked about at universal Florida where they show one of the scenes they've adapted it into 3d and it's called dial M for murder, which is just a great name for a movie. Now I've actually seen this one. Um, now I said, Sabbath, Taj was the first one I had seen uh, before starting the podcast. And so I had watched it a second time to review it, but it had been a long time ago. Now, Dial M, I had watched on my own maybe a month before starting the podcast. So it's still kind of fresh in my mind. Uh, So 
it'll be good to watch it again because I could probably recount some of it to you, but to have it again and have a thorough in my brainage of it is going to be good. I want to thank you for listening uh, to the show. Uh, you can reach me on Twitter at podcast by Jeff. Email the show Hitchcock chronologically at gmail.com. Check out my other two podcasts, Budget Arcade, where we review free to play games every other Tuesday, and The Movie Draft House, where Mark and I, who you might be hearing in the near future on this podcast, we review movies uh, that we draft for ourselves to watch based on themes, monthly themes. Check those out. Uh, like I, I think I said before, if you're interested in that, I start with the Uncut Gems episode. Mark and I agree that's probably our best episode we've done together, and uh, I I think it's a lot of fun. Uh, it is... Uh, I try to keep this ep- this show like a, a PG, PG-13 range. And Draft Movie House is a little more after dark, if you catch my meaning. Anyway, thanks again for listening. I, oh, like, listen, dial him, rear window, to catch a thief, which is Cary Grant, who I love. I, it's a man who knew too much. The trouble with Harry. It, I, I, we are through the looking glass. Like I thought I confess was going to be the last hurdle before we really get to the great stuff. But little did I know I confess was part of the great stuff. So we're in the great stuff. And hopefully from here on out, it's just great stuff after great stuff. I've paid my dues.